From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While Tennessee is a beautiful place with many natural wonders to savor, the men's basketball team did not have an enjoyable week visiting the Volunteer State. Losses at Vanderbilt and Tennessee have put the Gators in a tough position late in the season, and on today's show, we'll discuss hoops in depth with senior Igor Kulichov. Also, we'll get analysis on basketball, the latest news on the football staff, and a recap of the opening week for baseball in our roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. But first, putting athletes aside, few people have had journeys as unique as Igor Kulichov's. The grad transfer is now called three countries and three universities home at one point or another, so before we talked about his basketball career, we wanted to hear how his globetrotting story began. I grew up in Russia until I was about seven years old uh, with my family. And then uh, me and my parents, we moved to Israel while the rest of my family stayed in Russia. And then when I was 16, I chose to come to the States and uh, pursue playing college basketball, you know, playing high school college basketball. You mentioned the move from Russia to Israel. Can you tell us what prompted that move and why that was important for your family? Uh, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I mean, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, it was a tough time in Russia, a uh, real tough time, you know, bad uh, mobs, all kind of stuff. You know, we just felt like we kind of had to get out. I wasn't quite sure until about a couple of years ago why, but that, that's pretty much the main reason. So making that move at that age, what was that like in terms of assimilating into such a different culture and, and what were the, the biggest challenges in that? Uh, it was just challenging because there weren't many Russians and I couldn't speak Hebrew when I got to Israel. So for about a few months going to school every day, I couldn't understand the word people were saying, teachers were saying, like, I was just trying to find myself. And I mean, I can't imagine how tough it was for my parents, you know, with finding a job, just talking to people. It was, it was a hard transition. I know at one point there, you guys were living on a kibbutz, which is pretty interesting. I know most yeah. people probably don't understand what that is. Can you talk about what a kibbutz is and what that was like for, for you and your family? Yeah, uh, it's basically village kind of community living. Uh, that's how I would describe it. It's really small houses. You know, it's like a big community. Everybody knows each other. Uh, and honestly, as a kid growing up there was great. I enjoyed it a lot. I understand that's not I know you want to build your life and all that, but as a kid, I enjoyed it a lot. Is that where you started playing basketball, or when did basketball first become part uh, of your life? No, I, uh, basketball didn't become part of my life till I was about 13. When I stopped playing soccer, I was kind of going tall, stopped playing soccer. We just moved to the city, too, and I had to find basically a different sport, some closer. We didn't have a car, so I had to find some close. I wanted to play tennis. That didn't work out. It was an expensive sport. Uh, and basketball was right at my school, which was a five minute walk. It was like three sessions a week for about, you know, 40 minute sessions. Uh, I just did that just to kind of pass time. So once you started playing basketball, how long did it take for you to realize it was something you were good at and that it was something that could maybe 
take you some some places in life? It took me a couple of years because I wasn't very good when I started playing. <laughs> it took me a couple of years, uh, but then people kind of started signing up for like those leagues and stuff, and the whatever the system was in Israel. Uh, and I told I told my parents like I'm done. Like I, I don't want to go that far. Like leave. That sounds like serious. Um, so I didn't want to do that. But then a couple of days later, my mom came back uh, and said like I'm going to practice. I said, but I mean I stopped playing. She said I signed you up for a league. So I said, okay, <laughs> that's how I started playing. And then, I mean, it took me a while. Couldn't do much, couldn't shoot, couldn't really dribble. Used to dread playing one-on-one because I just couldn't score. Good rebound. That's about it. <laughs> so you obviously now are known for being a great shooter and, and a really creative shot maker. Mm-hmm. When did that part of your game develop? You know, I think probably when I came to the States at 16 because I didn't make my first three in the game to like 10th grade hmm. till 10th grade i mean and it was still in israel uh and then after that i just kind of you know started messing around with it kind of like floaters one foot shots fadeaways and but, but i mean it wasn't like sort of practice to a point where i just go to a, to the park and like just shoot around a lot i guess that's kind of maybe where it started i'd say so is, is there a process that, that you would go through in terms of coming up with those shots? Because when people watch you play, I mean, you do things other guys don't really do. Are those things that just happen spur of the moment, or are they things that you've maybe worked on on your own on, on a practice court for a while? Uh, it's mostly the spur of the moment. Uh, I'm trying to be creative, uh, different angles, and especially offseason, you know, when I play kind of three-on-three three and five-on-five five and stuff. Um, that's when I play with people and they're like, oh, like you have such an awkward game. Like, <laughs> oh, where, where I'm going to shoot it from. Uh, but I mean, I take it as a compliment. I think, uh, you know, I'm obviously, you know, not the most like athletic guy, or the tallest guy, the longest guy. So I got to get by that somehow. In terms of taking those shots and being that guy, it takes a lot of confidence, I imagine, to do that. Where do you feel like that confidence comes from for you? Um... Uh, you know, my teammates give me a lot of confidence, my coaches, but at the same time, it has to come from yourself too, from within. Because I feel like if you don't have confidence, you can't really play any sport. <laughs> if you don't have confidence in yourself that you can do things, I think sport is as much mental, if not more than physical. It's a big part of any game. I think everybody's got influences when they play a sport, especially when they get to the level that, that you're at. So I'm curious, is there an individual or individuals that have had the biggest impact on your basketball career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's people along the way that I've met you know, since I got here. Uh, you know, obviously my parents who let me go pursue my dreams. But I mean, it's people I wouldn't make it to where I am without, you know, for example, my um, high school coach, Adam Ross. Uh, has been like a father to me since I got to the States and he helped me through, you know, every, every process from, you know, selecting my school or, you know, transfer process. Uh, he's been there the whole way, you know, um, Rice coaching staff, coach, especially Scott Para, Coach Para, who's uh, the head coach there now. Uh, he, I met him my junior year of high school and, you know, we, we've had a relationship ever since. I mean, it just goes beyond basketball. So you come to the States, and obviously that's a, a huge move. Can you take us through that decision? I mean, what was the reaction of your family when you said you were going to do this, and, and where did the idea come from to make that big of, 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 a, of a jump? Yes, I was watching college basketball on TV a couple of times, and I just saw the crazy atmosphere, and then I always knew that in the States, you know, that's the biggest and the best basketball stage and, you know, education that you can get. 
as a basketball player. So uh, that kind of became my goal. I didn't really want to stay in Israel. Kind of wanted to get out. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I took it. We talked earlier about the the culture shock when you moved from Russia to Israel. What was that next culture shock like when you came to the States? And what were some of the the biggest things that you had to adjust to? Honestly, it's so tough because every culture is so different. I I hardly remember now, but I mean, I, I know, you know, Russia, Israel, States, I mean, every culture is very different. Uh, I, honestly, there's something I like about every single one of them. Uh, I like the culture here a lot. It's really like sports oriented culture. I mean, people, there's so many diehard fans out here, uh, you know, football, basketball. Uh, I mean, it's huge. Uh, and that's something I want to be around. So making the multiple stops that got you to, to Florida, Arizona State and Rice, you, you've, you've been around a good bit, and I imagine you learn a lot when you go through that. Can you tell mm-hmm. us what you took from each of those stops on your journey to be a Gator? Uh, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I always tell myself, like, I wish I knew in high school, I mean, what I know now. Because, you know, again, for all those stops and what you learn, but, you know, you, you learn who the people who are really close to you, and which people you know are kind of just there for you when you when you succeed or like when you're when you're playing well you know I went through like two knee surgeries uh so I know exactly who the people in my circle are who I can count on who I can trust I'm just grateful throughout this whole journey of like you know going through this my third school and you know just coming here to Florida uh it's been an amazing experience and I don't regret it for one bit. I know the story of how you got to Florida is interesting because when you announced your intentions to be a grad transfer, you got attention from a lot of people, but you wanted to make sure that the people that were talking to you really had seen you play and knew what you were about. So can you tell us about that that first encounter with Coach White and how that conversation went? Yeah, I guess that's kind of became a famous one. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, was, I mean, I was driving to uh, San Antonio, I remember. And um, it was just the weekend and got a call. And, you know, again, like I said, Adam Ross, he helped me to kind of filter through those schools. He told me what calls to take, which ones, I mean, I shouldn't probably take. Uh, so I was, you know, I was expecting the call. And, you know, Coach White called me, said they'll be interested and they'd like to get me there. Uh, so I just kind of asked him if he's ever, you know, he's ever like watch me play. Because I, I knew the numbers. I mean, they speak for themselves. But, I mean, do you actually think I would fit because I mean you haven't really seen me play and I asked him that he was honest um he was honest he said no no I haven't but you know what uh, let me do that I think it was on the, on the beach watch highlights watch tape I guess uh, you know I just wanted to make the process fair you know this is a big decision for either for either party too I mean it's the school uh and, and myself as well I mean we should both benefit from that relationship so once you made the decision to come to Florida, tell us how you were welcomed and, and what the process was like of fitting into that new culture of your, your third school and program that you'd been a part of. Yeah, I mean, I was welcomed with open arms. I mean, the guys here are great teammates, the coaching staff. It's all one big family. Everybody cares so much. Fitting in, you know, I didn't know where I was going to live at first. Uh, but then, you know, I moved in with uh, Chris Jalen and uh, Johnny Bunu. Uh, they had an extra, and I'm glad I did that because, I mean, you know, these are my friends. These are my teammates. Uh, and that way, you know, I'm always around them. Uh, you know, that was a big move. And then, I mean, just, you know, killing a lot of old habits. When you, Once you come to a new school, uh, there's always you were used to do one thing for about three years for me. And now all of a sudden terminology is changing a little bit. Uh, the way 
they do things changes a little bit. I'm honestly, I still haven't killed all those uh, habits I had from rice, but I like to think that I'm doing pretty well. What teammates do you feel like have had the biggest impact on you since you got to Florida? Oh, it's hard to name one. I mean, the guys, they're just, you know, everybody's unique in their own way. And they're just, everybody are good guys. You know what I mean? But I mean, I'd say, I mean, Chris, Chris Chioza, uh, we spent a lot of time together. I mean, he's one of my best friends on the team. Uh, he's our leader, our point guard. He runs the show. You know, that's his team. Um, he, he's been great. I mean, he's been nothing but helpful, whatever I ever needed. Any help, he was always there for me. I mean, I could say the same, honestly, about a lot of those, a lot of those guys, just, you know, high character guys. Having the chance to live with, with some of those guys as well, as you just mentioned, I'm curious if you can share a story or two. I, I know some stories you probably can't share, but maybe <laughs> a, a recent, a recent experience that, uh, that people would find amusing. Mm, I think, I, I don't know about the experience, but I think, I think people would find this kind of odd. We barely see each other at the apartment. Really? Like. We see each other mostly here on the court or we go do something, but at the apartment, I mean, rarely do we ever see each other. Everybody's kind of got their own thing going and that's fine. That's fine. You know, everybody got things going on. So I think that's a little odd though. I'm sure most people have a memory of, of rooming with, you know, three, four people in college and a, a habit a roommate had that drove them crazy. What is something one of your roommates does at the apartment that drives you absolutely crazy that constantly happens? <laughs> we we have a we got to take the trash out it's pretty it's a pretty far <laughs> walk we we have to drive to like the, the trash spot so we're having issues a lot with you know who's taking the trash <laughs> now there's a weekly chart of who's taking but every time it's Jalen's turn I mean there's there's gonna be three bags there <laughs> that you'd get tired of and you're like man all right, I'll take it because it just stinks at some point, you just give in, right? Like, I'll do yeah, it. I just, I just want the trash gone. Take it anymore. <laughs> Every time. Um, final few things for you, Igor. I'm curious, away from basketball, I know that time is probably not something you have a lot of, but what are some things you enjoy outside of the sport? Outside of the sport? I mean, I'm very, like, simple, I'd say. I mean, obviously, I play some video games. I, I read, but, I mean, I'm very, a very random reader i can read like three books in about two weeks and then not read for about a month and a half and then read again so i do that i mean obviously there's school work um i rest and you know, i try to rest my body give it a break uh whenever i can i know it's such a long season you know hang out hang out with my boys my teammates uh we try to do something uh, every week um very simple what are some of the more interesting things that you've read recently maybe something you would suggest that, that fans check out uh, so just the fans check out. I, I actually read a Pablo Escobar <laughs> book <laughs> about a month ago. Uh, I thought that was a good read just to go into his mind and kind of his life and see see how crazy that was. thought that was interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. As we're talking right now, the season and, of course, your college career are starting to wind down to a close. So what thoughts do you have at the moment about what happens next for you and, and how much does that enter your thought process? It enters sometimes, but, uh, you know, I try not to think about it as much as I can because at the end of the day, I'm trying to enjoy every single moment I have here. And I won't be able to do that if I start thinking, thinking ahead or thinking about the future. So I try to give my all to those guys right now um, and see, see where this can take us. And, you know, after season, 
I mean, we'll uh, we'll take it from there. I'm not worried. I know things work out one way or another. Like most guys, I'm sure you have aspirations of playing at the next level. So when you watch the NBA, which players do you most admire? Which guys stand out to you and why? Mm, yeah, I always enjoy, you know, watching, you know, Manu Ginobili obviously still playing. I was like those guys like Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, kind of an old school game to him. Uh, but right now I'm uh, loving watching uh, Clay Thompson, just loving uh, watching, you know, his shot is near perfect. Uh, he doesn't need the ball in his hands a whole lot. Catch and shoot guy. He's, his defense was horrific when he got into the league, and he's one of the best defenders now. Uh, that's you know that's things I aspire to do. Last question for you, bringing things back to the Gators. I know it's it's been a tough stretch for the team as we're talking yeah. right now. What have the coaches been stressing you guys to try and get things going back in the right direction at, at this critical time? Uh, just you know, relock in, refocus. Uh, it's the final stretch of the season, like you said, and this it's on us to kind of focus on the right things and put everything everything aside, any you know personal agendas, any distractions, put it all aside for this next month uh, and see what we can do because at the end of the day, we only got so many games left together. No question. Well, Igor, you've had an amazing journey to become a Gator. I know everyone's enjoyed watching you play, and uh, we thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Injury issues have plagued the basketball team all year, and that's led to some significant issues in terms of both size and depth. As the season has worn on, those have become more and more pressing for Mike White as he and his staff try and stay in the NCAA tournament picture despite their late season struggles. So before diving into football and baseball in our weekly roundtable, we began by asking Chris how the Gators can pull it together down the stretch. Win a game. It's not meant to be to sound sarcastic, but, you know, you've lost six to eight SEC games. Uh, you had two games in your grasp last week, uh, only to lose, uh, you know, up double digits, uh, both at home against Georgia and at Vanderbilt um, with 10 minutes to go. Uh, you got to finish. Um, <laughs> you go to Tennessee and, and it just, there wasn't a lot of juice at the beginning. And yet it was one of our harder playing games of the season. Uh, and it had to be to have a chance to win the game because Tennessee is one of the hardest playing teams in the country. Florida had its opportunities. They came back, actually took the lead after a really slow start. They had three possessions in the second half uh, where they had a chance, I think, to take a lead down one point. Never were able to capitalize on that. But at some point, guys, whether whether it's determination, whether it's fight, whether I think it needs to get to the point of anger right now. Um, you know, Mike White has tried everything in terms of motivational uh approaches you know at some point it has to come from internally in the locker room and, and a couple of weeks ago they tried that big meeting and it seemed to work initially you know florida came out won a couple games uh, but now everything's reversed uh three game losing streak and three games to go and enter auburn be a top 10 team needs one win to clinch a regular season sec title which god knows the last time they did that i would say maybe uh late 90s i think they had a share of the conference late 90s with Kentucky uh, when Cliff Ellis was there. So these are dire circumstances right now. And uh, if Florida wants to make the postseason tournament, I mean, you look at the standings, Adam, there's six teams right now at eight and seven, all tied for third place. Hmm. Put a couple wins together, and all of a sudden you're in a fairly advantageous situation as far as going into the SEC tournament. But I don't know that there's a team right now that's that's playing at the level Florida is. And that's not really a compliment. I mean, every, everybody else has won some games lately. Florida is trending in a different direction and something needs to happen quickly. 
you know, you're with the team every step of the way, every trip, most practices. I, I guess the question a lot of fans would have at the moment is, what's it like internally right now? What is the mood like as, as they try and find some answers? I don't know. There's you look around and, you, and you're waiting and you're waiting kind of for somebody to have a uh, take charge moment. And uh, frankly, it's just not how this team is wound. Mike White has spoken about that. He's spoken about how these these are nice kids and they 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 do what they're asked in terms of practice and everything. But it doesn't always translate on the floor, and it certainly hasn't in some pivotal times the last few weeks. Uh, again, I go back to just saying it. At some point, you know what these guys have to look at each other and say, you know, what do you want to make of the season? At some point, Kayvon Allen has to say, is this really the season I want to have? Or I go to Tennessee and don't score. First time in 84 games that, I, that I'm that I'm scoreless. Uh, there's a lot of basketball things that are going on right now that, that have caused this downward spiral. Uh, the Gators are just really, really easy to defend right now. It's, it's not hard. You get out on the three-point line, keep him out there. You get all up in Kayvon Allen. He's not going to drive the ball. He hasn't shot a free throw the last two games. He's, he's a 90% free throw shooter. He took three shots at Tennessee. This is a guy who needs to get to the free throw line because he makes them when he gets there. In terms of the, the three-point shooting, this team, it's funny, after the Tennessee game, Adam, uh, all these questions went up Mike White and Rick Barnes, the Tennessee coach, about you know how great a job Tennessee's defense did on the Florida's vaunted three-point attack. Florida has shot the last 10 SEC games below 30% from three-point range. It's not vaunted anymore. Hmm. It's struggling. And uh, they have, I think, out of the last eight games, or excuse me, out of the last 10 games, they've only hit a, they've only hit 70 points three times. So they're struggling to put the ball in the basket. And we saw at Vanderbilt uh, last week, they were 9 of 21 on so-called layups, which, you know, shots within the restricted circle or on the block. So they're not finishing. They're, they're getting opportunities and just they're not converting. And when you're not scoring and you can't make layups, I mean, things are going to compound. You're going to have a hard time finding a way to win. So uh, having said that, you know, it's, it's right there. Flores RPI has really pummeled after winning at Kentucky. They're at 23rd, I think, in the RPI. Now they're down to about 64th after this loss to Tennessee. Now you get Auburn, which is a top five RPI team. You go to Alabama, which is probably a top 30, top 35 RPI team. And you finish with Kentucky, which I think has worked its way back into a top 10 RPI team. So it's all there. There comes a time where you got to put the ball in the basket and you guys get stops when it matters. Does Florida have the intestinal fortitude to uh, come up with a, a win, if not a couple wins, in these last three games? Two of them are at home, which happen to be a place where they've lost five games this year. They played some of their uh, least impressive games at the O'Connell Center. And so uh, that's something that maybe uh, uh, they should take a little pride and a little initiative in trying to fix. You were dancing around it there for a moment, and again, the dance, that's what everyone's talking about, and you're talking to fans on Twitter all the time. You know how concerned people are, so you know, at the moment, you look in your crystal ball, what do you see as Florida's current situation and what needs to happen to make sure they are in the NCAA tournament and not going to the NIT? Well, all these, all these bracketologists have them in, but that's all, that's, all that thing is based on is, is a snapshot of the moment. The season doesn't end now. Season <laughs> get three games. Yeah, they lose. They don't win any of those games. They're not getting in. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. You know. So so what do they end up being? Seventeen and fourteen or so. That's that, that's not getting them in, regardless of how many quad one wins and impressive wins they have. No, it's not going to matter that they beat Gonzaga in November and beat Cincinnati in December and uh, won at Missouri uh, and and some things that look pretty good right now at Kentucky. Uh, they're going to look at how you know what you are right now. 
and Florida's not in the tournament, and every player in the locker room knows that's the situation. Uh, it's a question of whether or not they can do something about it and whether or not they will. You mentioned Auburn coming in this weekend. That's the one that everyone's looking at. Obviously, a chance to really secure things. I, I'm just I'm blown away by what Bruce Pearl has done there. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about how he's done it, and maybe this doesn't last based on some of the things that have come out related to the, to the bigger college basketball scandal. But what's your make of what Bruce Pearl has done at Auburn and is it even more impressive than what he did at Tennessee? Yeah, you know, I was reminded in that time at Tennessee about how great Bruce Pearl was as a, as a coach there. Uh, you know, he had Florida's number. Some of Florida's greatest teams, the greatest Florida teams, uh, he routinely beat them. I think he even swept the uh, the team that uh, won the second straight national championship, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, he's done this thing at Auburn. They had to suspend two of their players before the season started over that scandal that you referenced before. They come in, they're, they're scoring 85 points a game. They have great three-point shooters. They beat the hell out of Alabama the other night. And I think Mustafa Heron, uh, maybe their best player, if not their second best player, uh, he didn't even play in the game because he had, I think he had some kind of flu or virus or something like that. Mm. But they're going to come in here. They're not big. They'll get up and down the floor. They'll have no conscience. They'll shoot. And I, I'm not sure that that's not something Florida needs right now, a team that will come in here and kind of get wide open and, and be a little cocky about uh, cranking back as many long balls as they can. That's just how they play. They're averaging 85 points a game. They're shooting 46, 46% from the field and almost 38% from the three-point line. Does Florida want to get in the three-point shooting contest with Auburn? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're actually a team that you can do some things inside with, but uh, the question is, can Kavarius Hayes and Keystone or Igor Korolchev or any of those guys finish inside? So um, it, what Bruce Pearl is probably the, uh, the SEC coach of the year. I think definitely think Rick Barnes deserves some credit on that front. They were Tennessee was picked 13th in the league. They're not 20 and seven. They're safely in the tournament, maybe as a high as a four seed or something like that. Uh, maybe better. Uh, Auburn is, has a chance to play its way into a one seed if it wins the SEC uh, regular season title and, and and doubles it up in the tournament. I would think. So a uh, phenomenal job by him. He's having the kind of season and that you know a lot of people thought Florida may be on its way to uh, way back in November, but obviously those roles have flip flopped. So that game is Saturday night at 8.30. Uh, let's turn our attention now to Gator baseball. Off to a, a really good start as anticipated, given certainly the competition. But, Scott, from what you saw out at the MAC over the first five games, what stood out to you so far from Kevin O'Sullivan's team? So far, you know, the pitching has been excellent, been as expected, but the hitting has certainly, uh, I think, uh, surprised some people. This is a club that everyone knew the pitching, uh, barring injury, was going to be solid. but you had questions about the offense because even last year when they won the College World Series, it wasn't Florida's best offensive team by any stretch of the imagination under Kevin O'Sullivan. And yet this year they've come out and remember they played Siena three games and then Florida Atlantic and uh, Bethune-Cookman. So they're not exactly facing SEC caliber pitching yet, but uh, they're hitting the ball well. They're well uh, over – 350 as a team. They're showing some power. J.J. Schwartz with a couple of early home runs. Jonathan India is homered. Keenan Bell at first base is homered a couple of times. So the offense has been better than expected, uh, better than advertised, Adam. And I think uh, you mix that in with good pitching with some newcomers like Will Dalton in right field. Uh, he's already got 10 RBIs to lead the, the team heading down to Miami. So the guy's averaging two RBIs a game. Not a bad uh, first week uh, in your Florida baseball career after transfer for Columbia State College up in Tennessee. So uh, all in all, it's, it was a good first week. Uh, 
five and zero heading down to Miami, and uh, you know the test gets a little more difficult down in the Miami against the Hurricanes. Well, it is a good challenge, too. It's such a great rivalry, if nothing else. It'll be a, a good opportunity early on for this Gator team to get tested mentally, if nothing else. I think that's exactly right. Uh, Miami always uh, is a big rivalry series anytime, any season. And, you know, the Gators always know that this series is going to come early in the season. They they alternate back and forth between here and Miami uh, each year. It's down in Miami this year. And remember, the Hurricanes snuck into the NCAA tournament last year. Their record streak of making it was in on, in jeopardy until they rallied in the uh, the conference term and postseason. Uh, but again, it's a, a good Miami program that has a very familiar face in Danny Reyes, who started his career here at Florida and was a promising looking player. But decided to transfer to junior college last year. He's resurfaced this year with the Hurricanes and had a really big uh, first weekend uh, against Rutgers uh, in their opening series. But again, he's going to be facing some guys like Brady Singer on Friday, Jackson Coar on Saturday, and uh, Tyler Dyson on Sunday. All three of those guys won their starts uh, the opening weekend. They combined for 20 innings, allowed, what, 13 hits and only, I think, uh, two earned runs. So it, it's going to be a classic Florida-Miami rivalry. Both teams are talented. Both teams have some attitude against each other. Uh, but more than anything for Florida, it, you're right, it's a, a chance to – to give the newcomers a different look, a, a very competitive, hostile environment, see how they respond and uh, see how this team responds as uh, it goes into the second week of the season. You know, the last few weeks we've talked about a lot of the new assistant coaches that we've been introduced to, and uh, there have been a lot since the last time we spoke, Scott, but the one I'm going to guess that fans are most interested in hearing about is Brian Johnson. He coaches the quarterbacks, and certainly that remains one of the big unanswered questions for Florida entering the Dan Mullen era. I'm curious to hear what he had to say about the guys that are going to be competing at that position. Well, he... You know, he doesn't know Felipe Franks, has a long relationship with uh, Emory Jones going back to two or three years ago while they were at Mississippi State, and Emory Jones and his mom came down for a visit. But he basically said um, that it's an open competition. He He's watched some of uh, Felipe Franks, likes his athleticism, likes his arm. Uh, you know, he believes that Emory Jones is someone who can come in and compete right away and, and challenge for that position. So, uh, you know, he, he, it's his job to kind of determine how that race shakes out. He's going to be the guy who teaches these uh, quarterbacks the Dan Mullen's offensive system. He's going to be working with them on a daily basis, and he's got an opportunity to work with people he's worked with in the past. He knows Dan Mullen well, knows Billy Gonzalez and John Hevesy. They all work together out of Mississippi State. Now he's getting to know Felipe Franks, Emory Jones, Kyle Trask, Jake Allen. These are the guys that are going to be working closely with Brian Johnson throughout the spring as he tries to uh, find some answers at a position that has uh, been a, a big question mark for Florida in recent years. On top of the quarterbacks, and we also had a chance to hear from some of the other offensive assistants like Hevesy, like Gonzalez. What else did they say about the offense? Do we get any more of an idea of, of what this is going to look like moving forward? The one thing I can tell you is it's going to be versatile. It's going to be built around the quarterback's strengths. I don't think they know at this point what the offense is going to look like. I think, I mean, that's what really this first spring camp for them is all about. It's about learning about Felipe Franks, what he does well, what he doesn't do well. Same with Emory Jones and same with the uh, other young quarterbacks on the roster. And, uh, there's still a lot we don't know, Adam, and how this thing's going to look by the time uh, the first game rolls around in the fall. 
again, if you look at the history of Dan Mullen, uh, whether it was his offensive coordinator at Florida or during his head coaching career at Mich- uh, Mississippi State, he was pretty good at changing the system up uh, to fit the talent they had on the roster. He mentioned that in his opening press conference here. He said that uh, he's not a guy who gets uh, bottlenecked, so to speak, by trying to uh, fit a guy into a system. It's smart if you have a guy who you feel comfortable and confident in position to tweak the system around him. Uh, I think that's what they're going to uh, try to find out. But first, you got to find out which guy is going to be the guy, and uh, that's got to be on top of your list. We've talked about how many things are going on during the spring, especially at this moment. Uh, gymnastics is doing really well. Softball is off to a hot start. Let's quickly talk about lacrosse, though. And you know, They had a, a huge challenge last weekend. They came up a little bit short against Maryland, Scott, but as far as a measuring stick goes, clearly showing that they're ready to compete with the, the top programs in the country this year. You know, they had played Maryland in the past, Adam, and uh, it was often uh, one-sided. Maryland had a clear advantage uh, even against Florida teams that were ranked, you know, in the top 10. Uh, Maryland's, what, they've won three of the last four national titles, I think. Uh, So, I mean, they've got a program that's really humming along right now. So they came down to Gainesville. Gators gave them a match. The final was 16-14, to and it was a good barometer early in the season for Mando O'Leary's young team. Uh, A lot of freshmen, a lot of newcomers are producing points for this team, and I think that that's going to be the identity. You're going to have a very young talented team and you got to believe that challenging Maryland like that is going to go a long way toward confidence for the uh, rest of the season and and, you know this is a Florida team that if things play out as you expect it's going to hang around the top five the top eight in the rankings all year Maryland's still at the top until they get knocked off so there's a very good chance that you're going to see that matchup again later in the year and, uh, again, I think uh, you just look at the way that, that win, the Gators. Every time Maryland kind of tried to run away, the Gators came back. And it was really close. They had some opportunities late in that match uh, that they, they just missed out on. But I think uh, Mandy O'Leary, she liked what she saw that game from uh, based on her comments. All right, for our PAT this week, I want to talk about the changing nature of attending sporting events and use Florida as kind of the context to discuss that. And the inspiration behind this was Scott Strickland coming out recently and saying that it's not going to happen overnight, but in the near term, he wants to look at maybe changing a big part of the fan experience at the Swamp, and that is the seating. You know, a lot of people struggle with going to games because it's Number one, it's hot. Number two, you've got benches throughout the majority of the stadium. There's not a lot of space for fans to be, and that's the way things used to be back in the old days. But you know, Scott Strickland's about new ways to get fans engaged and get them to come to the stadium, and he thinks that one of those answers might be putting in some seats, and you know, maybe it reduces capacity. My question for you guys is, yeah, as, as old school guys who are also on the, the cutting edge of change, I'm curious if you think, is that part of the experience? Is, you know, squeezing into that seat, is that sort of what you get when you go to a football game? Or does college football and the swamp need to adjust like other venues at, at the professional level? Adam, the challenge right now facing uh, not just Scott Strickland, but all of college athletics and all of uh, professional athletics is getting people to come to the game. I mean, the more technology advances, the less region you have to go. I mean, I, there's a hundred inch uh, flat screens in people's living rooms. I don't have one that big, but I certainly can get pretty comfortable on the couch with a, 
a Sierra Nevada pale ale a couple feet from from me in a refrigerator, as opposed to to deciding to go to a game, pay for parking and all that stuff, uh, concessions and what have you, and then uh, squeeze into a seat next to some guy who's big enough to sit in in his and half of mine. So uh, uh, I think the trend, if it isn't, it should be, is to when these these stadiums that are starting to be built, the next wave of stadiums. Frankly, they need to be smaller. Um, you look what soccer's doing, uh, and you know this as well as anybody. I mean, some of these really cool, intimate venues that are that are being played around the that are shooting up around the country um, that are getting rave reviews relative to fan experience. The San Diego Chargers played in the one in Los Angeles, and you would see these teams and these uh, media would go in this place and say, "Man, this is fantastic!" Just the views and the sight lines and what have you. And um, you want to go to a game, and regardless of the ac- outcome. The goal of the people putting on the game is have you uh, leave saying, man, that was that was a good experience. Scott Strickland, it's as important to anything that he does on a daily basis. And that's been his mantra since uh, since he took on this job. So I got no problem with it. Um, If anything, when there's a great game in the stadium, you want it filled. And to the point where I think it's okay that people didn't get tickets to go into it, you know, make it a happening to be there to to go to a game. Uh, I didn't have a problem when the O-Dome shrank, so I certainly wouldn't have a problem if uh, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium sank to its capacity. I know some people think that the Rowdy Reptiles shouldn't have seats, that they should be bouncing on on bleachers or in the wooden benches like they were before. And maybe there's something to that as far as students and what have you. But uh, it's almost 2020. you got to find a way to get people in the stadium. And I, and I don't know what Scott thinks, but I, I got a feeling he's going to agree with me. I, I will say, as a as an old school guy on the cutting edge, as you like to say, Adam, I, I'm in total agreement with Chris here. In today's world, there are so many entertainment options, and I think one thing that is becoming more and more clear: sports is viewed more and more as entertainment. I mean, you still have your passionate fan bases, but on a wide range for like audiences not associated with these particular teams or these particular uh, towns where these teams exist. I mean, it's, it's entertainment. It's uh, another option, like going to a movie or, or watching, uh, you know, Thursday night or Sunday night football, whatever you want to call it. There's so many options these days. So to get people in the stands at these venues, it's more challenging than I think ever before. And, and you have to always uh, be thinking about new ways uh, to accomplish that, and I think it's a wise decision by uh, you know Scott Strickland and others here at Florida to be uh, have that on their radar. And while the Swamp is one of the iconic venues in college football, it is still a great place to watch a football game, especially when the Gators are good and it's a big opponent and there's exciting moments. I mean, you've been there. There's very few places uh, in sports that get as loud and as electric as a swamp on a big game day. But again, those happen rare and rare, even when there's big games and good teams coming. It's just there's just so many options. And people nowadays are uh, we're all kind of our attention spans are shorter and shorter due to technology. And and uh, fans want the experience that they want. And you have to listen. Is that better technology? Is that better food service is that more seating options uh whatever it is you have to listen to them and i think that's what scott strickland's trying to do and and just trying to see uh, what that final plan is going to look like 
It's an interesting discussion. It's not something that's happening anytime soon, but certainly we'll look for it in the future. What we know is happening right here, right now, is a big weekend for Gator basketball, for Gator baseball, and the guys you can follow to cover everything are Gators Chris and Gators Scott on Twitter. And, of course, check out their stories on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you very much as always. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. All eyes will be on the O-Dome this Saturday as the Gators take on the SEC-leading Auburn Tigers in a critical game that you can watch at 8.30 on the SEC Network. Then come back next Thursday for an all-new episode of Gator Tales. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Exact Tech Arena.